0: Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You, from HouseToPorts.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Carolyn. And we are talking about cosplay today because... It's the season of the con. Well, it might be a little past the season of the con, but there're still some cons happening.
1: There's still some cons happening, namely uh Dragon Con here in Atlanta on Labor Day weekend.
0: Yeah, and as of when we are recording this episode, Comic Con just wrapped up. Mm-hmm. So there's been lots of news in our world of the past <laughs> as this podcast is coming out now about cosplay
1: and particularly women in cosplay. Yeah, so what is it? Real quick. Obviously, it's a mashup of costume and play, particularly dressing up like a sci-fi superhero comic book video game character, etc.
0: And cosplaying can range from just wearing a mask, even though I have a feeling if you show up at Dragon Con in just a mask and jeans, that is not going to cut it, uh, to actually becoming a character and it's almost a form of performance art at that point because not only do you wear a costume and makeup and wigs and all sorts of things but a lot of people tend to embody fully embody whoever it is they're dressed up as
1: yeah and it it sort of becomes your cultural capital when you go to these conferences as far as your accuracy, the accuracy of everything from your hat to your makeup to the clothes you're wearing to the shoes you're wearing. I have a friend who goes to Dragon Con every year and loves to dress up for it. And she's typically a character out of Star Wars and not somebody like Leia or Han Solo, not like a main character, but usually one of like the pilots, the types of pilots, and uh, I remember being so impressed at how accurate I thought her costume was, but she got some major flack when she went to Dragon Con because there was like a single piece of her costume that wasn't completely 100% accurate. Yeah, accuracy is highly valued. And uh, Stuff You Missed in History class
0: fans are probably well aware that host Holly is an incredible costume designer and on top of being an incredible podcaster. And the creations that she makes for Dragon Con are downright incredible and take months mm-hmm. to make because it's all about those details.
1: Yeah, I know. I have another friend who <laughs> she'll kill me if she hears me say this, but she has two jobs and one of her job is working at a fabric store, a crafting and fabric store, and part of the reason why she works there is she gets some pretty good deals. For, um, to make some costumes? To make some incredible costumes. She's an incredible seamstress and can whip up these amazing costumes and I just, I admire the time and dedication that goes into that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, well,
0: the history of cosplay is pretty fascinating as well and involves a lot of attention to detail and time intensive costumes. Uh, and while a lot of times, uh, people seem to think that cosplay just originated in Japan and was imported to the U.S., in fact, it has a pretty rich history in the U.S., uh, it goes all the way back to 1939 when sci-fi fan Forrest J. Ackerman attended the first ever World Science Fiction Convention, a.k.a. Worldcon, and
1: dressed in a, quote,
0: futuristic costume. All one word.
1: Yeah, and he was pretty much, along with his friend Myrtle Jones, the first to do so. Um, so I, I, did, I just want our cosplaying and con-going forward friends out there to close your eyes and imagine a con where no one is dressed up. Yeah. And that you're the weirdo if you do show up dressed up. And so Myrtle, his friend Myrtle, wore a gown to accompany him based on one from the 1933 film Things to Come. And these kids really got into character. They walked around looking like a pair of superheroes speaking Esperanto to each other. And I was like, what? Speaking what? That's actually a language that was constructed in modern history to be politically neutral. I am showing my ignorance here. I had literally never heard of Esperanto. I have
0: seen the one feature film uh, shot in complete Esperanto, and it stars William Shatner. Oh, It's very strange. Uh, it's also in black and white. So if you ever want, if you ever, I mean, if you love William Shatner, you should watch it.
1: Well, so the following year... Worldcon holds its first masquerade ball, so obviously Ackerman and Jones were doing something right. And then 16 years later, in 1956, Ackerman returns to Worldcon to report on it and notes how common costumes have become. I'm assuming he felt like like the OG cosplayer, like, oh, look at all these peons doing this now. He had
0: to have, although I feel like Ackerman always gets the cred, but wasn't it Myrtle Jones who made... His costume, I mean, like, obviously he gets credit for wearing it, but I'm pretty sure that it was Jones who constructed his costume, which sort of looked like a a 19, what you would think of as a a 1950s spaceman. It was like a, like trousers and a top with pointy shoulder pieces. It wasn't, it didn't look crazy elaborate, but that might be because it was a black and white photograph and also well also we're so used to costumes now this is true dragon con
1: has spoiled us caroline it has indeed but so you know from the 60s onward we start to see fans spending a lot more time money and effort creating their costumes to attend these cons and then in 1970 we get the first comic-con taking place in san diego only 300 people attended and costuming was not really a big part of it and then in 1975,
0: it becomes clear that even though costuming wasn't huge at Comic-Con at the time, there was a German newspaper that published an article on sci-fi conventions as, quote, largely devoted to costume dances, parties, and mutual flattery. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of fun. But I think the costume dances at the time were often still just uh, more along the lines of a traditional
1: masquerade. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so five years later in 1980, if we look to Japan, the manga series Urusei Yatsura is released. Sorry if I butchered that. Um, and along with the 1979 series Mobile Suit Gundam, it helped jumpstart cosplay in Japan, although it wasn't called cosplay yet. Um, that wasn't until 1984 when Japanese reporter slash manga publisher Takahashi Nobuyuki was the first to use the word cosplay after attending Worldcon in Los Angeles. Yeah, so the development
0: of cosplay is actually the result of this sort of back and forth between cons in the US and then the growing anime world. In Japan and Japanese readers apparently loved the term cosplay because, well, that and the concept because it really takes hold. And in just a few years, you have cosplayers dressing as anime characters. And then in the 1990s, that's when you see cosplay really starting to take off with the explosion of anime and manga In the United States.
1: Right, yeah. In the early 90s, you have the first anime expo in LA that attracted only about 1700 people. But by 2012, almost 50,000 people attended that con. And in 1999,
0: there was even a cosplay cafe that opened up in Tokyo. And by now, there are entire cosplay districts in Japan. And it's not, it's common to see people in cosplay. Uh, on the streets of Japan, not just because they're on their way to a con, but just because that's how they dress. They're always in cosplay.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it's kind of like historic, uh, historic Williamsburg, yeah. Virginia, I guess. <laughs> They're always dressed like it's the 1850s or something. Or the 17th. Anyway, by 2012, anime conventions are being held in 30 states in the U.S. and five provinces in Canada. And the following year, in 2013, cosplayers hit reality TV with the sci-fi channels Heroes of Cosplay. So it is like cosplay, as much as a lot of people think of it as being outside the mainstream and weird and something strange and foreign, it's pretty mainstream.
0: Yeah, I think cosplay is becoming mainstream uh, probably to the chagrin of some hardcore cosplayers, I know that uh, not everyone who was big into cosplay was a big fan of heroes of cosplay on sci-fi. Uh, I read a blog post on, I think it was a comics-related blog, talking about how it was just edited for reality, and it's not really. It it, it kind of ignored the heart of cosplay, which is all about. Just appreciating something and having a space to let your fandom run wild to finally, you know, to, to actually be the characters that you love and also be surrounded by people who love you for that, who look at the tiniest of details on your costume and think it's amazing. It's incredible. Mm hmm. But it's not just about the costumes. In fact, the focus of this podcast really isn't so much on the costumes, but rather the underlying gender play
1: that some scholars have looked into. Yeah, it's really interesting. The whole issue of cross-play, which I kind of, in my mind as a complete outsider, I never really... Subdivided, like, crossplay out from cosplay. I was always like, oh, well, you know, she's dressing like a male character or he's dressing like a female character, but there's been a lot of scholarship on this issue. So, like I pointed out, co- crossplay is dressing as a character of another gender and successful crossplay is seen as a means for cosplayers to distinguish themselves in their art and their skills as a fan. So it's not necessarily about, you know, becoming uh, someone of another gender, but becoming that character so completely that people are like, whoa, look at you, you're awesome. Yeah, a lot of people just compare it to drag for
0: for more lay audiences, um, and this is something though specifically male to female crossplay that Rachel Lang at Duke University looked into and she wrote in uh, a paper on this that when men crossplay as women they're not merely donning femininity but hyper femininity revealing the socially constructed nature of gender roles yet concomitantly reinforcing them which in a way is a lot like drag mm-hmm. because drag queens are not simply dressing up as women, but as hyper-feminine versions of women with the big hair and the big makeup and the sparkles.
1: Yeah, and I thought this was uh, such an interesting way to look at it because they talk a lot about the fictive nature of gender. So uh, I don't know if it was, I think it was this paper was talking to one particular cross player who talked about everything that he had to go through to become these female feminine characters he took voice lessons he learned how to walk he has to pay so much attention to how he moves his body to make sure that he's moving quote like a woman and not like a man which comes naturally to him and another interesting aspect of crossplay that racheling points out is that a lot of these uh, men who do crossplay as female characters really stress the fact that they're not gay not that there's not gay crossplayers but you know what i'm saying a lot of these men try to emphasize we're not gay. It's part of what a big fan I am that I'm dressing as this female character. And so just look at the gender spiral of this. So a man who is straight is dressing as a female character and to do it and to show how good of a fan he is, he's got to be super feminine while stressing that he's masculine. And so having to be so self-assured about that masculinity and heterosexuality while at the same time asserting femininity. Whew, layers. Well, yeah, and from that layers, uh, there sometimes
0: comes extra respect from the cosplay community if you dare to engage, or maybe not dare. It doesn't seem like it's that wild of an idea uh, to engage in crossplay because a lot of times, too, this involves making your own costume. And like you talked about, going to that extra effort to emulate these female characters as closely as possible. And Lang identified two major motivations that drive specifically the male to female crossplay, which are the desire to express Fandom and skills and also the thrill of an enhanced, which he calls carnivalesque
1: experience by transgressing the gender binary. In other words, it's just more fun. Yeah. And a lot of cross players, serious male to female cross players are really put off by uh characters like I can't remember the official name, but it's like basically like Bubba Sailor Moon, where guys who are like bigger and hairy and are not making that very strong physical effort to look like the female character that they're depicting. But, you know, so like the picture in the story was a this rather large man with a beard and a big gut. Dressed up as Sailor Moon, you know, with the blonde wig over his beard and everything. It's like more making light of it. Yeah. Whereas serious cross players are having none of that. And Mm -hmm. they are really making an effort to embody that character. Well, and probably
0: even more common, uh, as The Guardian reported on in 2010, is female-to-male crossplay. Because a lot of times, female cosplayers just might be challenged by the fact that there aren't as many, specifically if we're talking about comic book heroes, interesting, independent, strong female characters. Like, if they really want to be a super tough character, it
1: might demand cross-playing. And, and one benefit, or you know, whatever, one good thing about like anime and manga in particular is that while a lot of the comic book or video game sources that we have in the West, while the characters there might be very masculine and so women are choosing to cross-play as these male characters, in a lot of uh, manga and anime series, the characters are more ambiguous. So helping to enable this crossplay is things like uh, what's called Bishonin, which are highly feminized male characters with model like proportions that tend to appear in manga geared toward women. And along those lines, uh, what's. Super common to
0: see when you have uh, women cosplayers dressing up as traditionally male characters is what's called feming. So dressing up, say, as Doctor Who, but not trying to be one of the all-male Doctor Who characters over the years, but rather being a female Doctor Who, but a, a female version, I should say, of a specific Doctor Who. And you see this all the time. It's it's also kind of... Um, uh, you, you get into pockets of cosplay where it does start to look like the whole Halloween costume thing where it's just sexify anything. So you could be like a sexy bane and you'd just be wearing, you know, the, the scary face mask. But the, just a crop top. Just a crop top will do.
1: <laughs> right. And so um, blogger Night Sky said that Femming, a Doctor Who character is a way for geek women to reclaim their femininity as legitimate in a subculture that often denigrates all things girly.
0: Yeah, and that's, you know, it's interesting that there seems to be so much cred, at least according to that Duke paper, in the more realistic uh, male-to-female crossplay of men dressing up as female characters and really owning that female character, Um and then sort of similar to that, there also seems to be a lot of cred for feming cosplay as well, which yeah. is
1: kind of cool. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of fascinating gender play at work on con floors. Yeah, exactly. And responding to that blogger Night Sky, the Guardian writer does point out that, yes, she's absolutely right. Um, You know, it is a way to reclaim characters to say that, hey, girly is OK, But it's also serving as that reminder that a lot of female characters, including female characters in Doctor Who, are the sidekicks. Yeah, yeah. It's going back to that whole lack of good source material.
0: Yeah, and uh, speaking of that, cosplay has been a way to offer women entry into the traditionally male dominated gaming world, comic world, world of fandom. I mean, just think about the term fanboy. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty clearly gendered. Uh, and and one example called out in a paper we found in the journal Intersections, Gender and Sexuality in Asia and the Pacific, is how in Japan in particular, cosplay opened doors for Japanese women into the so-called technicultures.
1: Right. And so we We've talked about the concept of kawaii on the podcast before. That's basically just like hyper cuteness. And the paper was talking about how you see this rise of the cute culture, the kawaii, alongside techno cultures that uh, revolve around using a mobile device. And so basically that kawaii served as sort of a gateway from um, passive consumer to women actually entering the gaming realm, the anime realm and actively participating because in the same way that a woman might femme a Doctor Who character, they're talking about Japanese uh, girls and young women who are kind of cuting up characters and participating in cosplay that way.
0: And on top of that, they were focusing on this specific type of younger Japanese woman. And I don't have the Japanese term for it, but it essentially means... The single independent woman who is most closely associated with these cultures who is getting more into or has gotten more into, um, the technoculture and, and really the participatory aspects of that. And, uh, the paper also talks about how dressing up as characters in these games in particular sort of opens up new forms of gender performance. It decenters the geek guy as the prime game consumer. And so it, it's, a, it's the same kind of thing that you see happening over in the U.S. as well. But while there are all sorts of fascinating gender performance aspects to this, and well, the name that comes up over and over again actually in these papers on cosplay is Judith Butler, you know, who is the... I don't know if she'd want to be called the mother of it, but she's the matriarch of the idea of gender as performance. Um, and women are certainly welcomed in the cosplay world and are a prominent part of it,
1: but it's not, it's not all costumes and roses, Caroline. Well, yeah. So the whole thing about, you know, cosplay not being all kawaii all the time is that. Well, on the one hand, you've got all these women coming into cons and cosplay, and that's great, and that's amazing, and they should. Why not? Um, The more women that show up, the more reports surface of things like sexual harassment. You hear the statement a lot that cosplay does not equal consent, and we will talk a lot more about that in a minute. But, you know, there's the struggle with the fact that, like we just mentioned a minute ago, source material for women wanting to cosplay as strong characters is lacking. A lot of the comic book women, video game women characters are dressed on the more scantily clad side. Yeah, I mean, and,
0: and a lot of their proportions are super busty or super leggy, and it lends itself to sexy costumes. And even when, you know, we're we're doing, you know, if you're doing a femme costume of a male character, like I mentioned, sort of jokingly, uh, a lot of times those costumes get sexy and provocative as well. And while some in the cosplay world have argued that, you know what, it's too sexy, it's too booby, that's not what it's about. Um, the fact of the matter is, even if you are wearing a super sexy costume, whether it is being faithful to that original character portrayal or if you are reinterpreting a costume in a sexier version, that's not an invitation for someone to touch you or take upskirt photos of you right. or verbally harass you. And unfortunately, that has become at least a more media prominent part of the cons. Uh, so, for instance, recently with the San Diego Comic-Con, there was this entire initiative uh, started by a group called Geeks for Consent.
1: That's capital C O N. Sent consent. Yeah. And Geeks for Consent was basically pushing for Comic-Con to adopt a stronger, more official anti-sexual harassment policy beyond just their standard code of conduct. And they ended up collecting more than twenty six hundred signatures on a petition to get such a policy. And they stated on their website that unfortunately, some congoers see women in costumes as just a part of the convention scenery and believe that they are dressed up solely to attract male attention. And, you know, they're arguing that it's not fair that, like if you have a male, for instance, just to use the example of a male to female crossplayer, like, you know, he's praised for being so faithful to the character's depiction. And so if you have a woman who wants to pick a strong woman from anime or video games or movies or something, and that character happens to be scantily clad or wearing a crop top or ripped jeans or something, you know, they want to be faithful to that strong character. And sometimes that just involves being scantily clad themselves. But that is not an okay a pass to harass these women, grope these women. And it's what so many have to end up dealing with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. there are groups that are working to address this matter and to improve things. Uh for instance, the New York Cosplayer Network has put together panels to teach women how to stay safe and also deal with harassment. Although it does seem like it's not necessarily, well, let's just say it's not just the women who could use some education regarding harassment and how to behave um and then beyond that, there have been some issues, particularly with cosplayers of color. Because, you know, as we talked about, when it comes to cosplay, authenticity is the number one currency. If uh-huh. you can look down to a T like a particular character, then you are golden. But when it comes to representation in, uh, comic book heroes, for instance, A lot of them not only are male, but they're also very white as well. So, uh, there's actually a Tumblr, um, called cosplaying while black just to offer some visibility to, you know, cosplayers of color that, Hey, look, we can cosplay too, just because our skin tone might not match the skin tone of whatever character we are dressing up as.
1: Yeah. I, I hated. Reading the kinds of things that blogger Shaka Cumberbatch over at XO Jane had to face when she dressed up as Sailor Moon. She was like talking about how excited she was to dress up as, as this character, how great of a time she had, but that uh, one single picture of her dressed in character like blew the internet up with people saying incredibly awful racist things. And essentially it boiled down to she wasn't suited because of her skin. Because of the, f- her face shape, her nose shape, she wasn't suited for such a cute character. I did like her point though when she
0: says, you know, I don't understand being attacked for not being accurate down to my skin color because no one can be accurate when a character is eight feet tall with quote basketballs for boobs, which is a very good point because there, there have been issues not only with cosplayers of color but also uh people of different body shapes and sizes being called out, especially if they might be wearing a tighter fitting or a more skin revealing costume of saying, Oh no, you mm you're too you're too big to wear that none of none of that now where you know the the people who are really invested in cosplay would say. But that's the whole part of this. This is for everybody. This is the space where I can bring all of my super geeky fandom that people that I work with or people that I, you know, see regularly in public just might not get about me. This is where people can get me. Mm-hmm. So why do I need to look a certain way? Yeah. And that whole issue, too, of, of visibility and representation um, and cosplay for everyone is another reason why uh, sort of a, as uh, jumping off from cosplaying while black. There's also a popular cosplaying while trans mm-hmm. Tumblr because uh, it was started by a trans woman who said, you know what? I cosplay all the time and I wanted some costume inspiration from other trans cosplayers and I could find nothing. yeah. And so that started as well because, uh, you know, and there were a lot of people who came out on on the Tumblr sharing their photos and talking about how wonderful it was to see other trans people cosplaying because they felt like they always needed to keep their sort of identity under wraps for fear of discrimination. Yeah, the, a
1: lot of uh, the trans cosplayers in this article were sort of talking about how they were on the defense. They had to run defense all the time because people it's that whole layered gendered thing. You know, are you are you cosplaying? or Are you cross playing? You know, what are you really? You're really a guy like having to face that abuse. So not only do you have to deal with potential sexual harassment, but you also have to deal with people harassing you for. Like not being biologically accurate, I don't know. It's like, uh, there's, there's so many ways to, to be attacked.
0: Well, it's interesting that that's happening to, that it would happen. And I, and I really hope that this is the exception. I don't think that this is really the rule. Um, but these are instances that are certainly getting a lot more attention as they should. Um, but it's fascinating that these kinds of things come up in an area where it seems like it should all be about. You know, it's it's all about sort of deconstructing gender, you know, and what I mean, and, and a lot of these, a lot of these characters aren't even
1: human. Yeah. So what's the problem here? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, moving to, you know, we want to continue this, this gender discussion of cosplaying, but we obviously have to bring feminism into it because I mean, you could go in a circle forever talking about a woman cosplayer dressing up as a scantily clad comic book character and whether that's empowering and feminist or whether that's being, she's being exploited. I mean, it's quite a discussion. It is quite a discussion. Uh, The fact of the matter is there are,
0: uh, professional cosplaying women um, who essentially are just, they're models. Mm-hmm. They're very attractive women uh, with very conventionally attractive bodies that involve large breasts and small waists and attractive behinds. And they, you know, have fan groups and fan pages and make money, you know, by going to different cons and dressing up. And their costumes obviously are sexy. And that's the whole point of it. And not everybody likes that. So, for instance, if someone like Jessica Negri, who is a professional cosplayer, she's probably one of the most successful and well-known and is very sexy. If she goes to a con, people complain that, well, it's hard to get anywhere because people are just crowding up to, you know, and by people, it's usually all guys, crowding to take photos with her. And it's women like that who are making it super sexy who are ruining it for the rest of us to which Jessica at all who are also, you know, making money off of this partially because they look really great in sexy costumes say, "Hey now. No, I'm I'm just this is what I'm doing."
1: Right? And so uh, there's a lot of argument over whether something like that is empowering and feminist or not. And then IGN actually talked to three women cosplayers who talked a lot about enjoying the validation and attention that comes along with dressing up like this, of feeling feminine and or powerful, and also using their sexuality. Uh, All of this in the framework of feminism. But they also do talk in this interview a lot about the extreme sexual harassment that they face, whether it's just verbal or actually physical, and the misogyny that they know exists but the whole thing about talking to these three women is, um, they really, really took issue with feminism.
0: Yeah. They all completely disavowed feminism because it seemed like the, the women who were most critical of them were coming from a feminist stance, basically saying that they were degrading themselves by being sexy. And this, this gets into a whole different kind of conversation though. Yeah.
1: Well, yeah, because somebody like the Vixen Gamer, she says, we're seeing a big spearhead of feminism in the gaming industry, and I think, don't sacrifice your femininity femininity to fit in. And then there's the whole conversation of, well, what is... I mean, let's not get super philosophical right now, but, like, what is femininity, and who are you being feminine for, and who are you performing your gender for, and are you really doing it to make yourself happy, or are you doing it because you are... Fitting into what men expect of you and on and on and on.
0: I am, I would love to hear from cosplayers on this particular issue because, you know, you and I can only offer outside perspectives. To me, the, the simplest way to boil it down is ladies, you do you. Okay. Yeah. If this is the way that you make your, your money and you feel empowered and safe doing it. Okay, but do other lady cosplayers a solid and unlike black cat, don't blame them for men behaving badly. Because as she describes, if you don't turn around and threaten to uh, hurt them in the penis region, then you're the one to blame for your own harassment. It's like everyone just needs to. Could we all just get on the same page regarding harassment and good behavior? And could you just promote? good behavior, and then then can, can, can't we all just con
1: together in, in peace and harmony? That would be great, but something that I thought was so strange, and, a, and another blogger thought this was odd, too, but in this interview, Ardella, Cosclare Ardella, says that sexism is really a point of view. It's how you react to it and how you portray yourself as to whether or not you allow people to objectify you. She basically said, don't let anyone treat you like an object if that's not the way you want to be treated. To which, you know, I just like my eyes rolled into the back of my head because, okay, blogger Introskeptive, a.k.a. Rhea Jenkins, had an appropriate response, I thought. She said that to suggest that sexism, rather than being inherently wrong, is simply a matter of how the person affected deals with it, is ridiculous. And she takes issue with a lot of the arguments that were raised in the interview.
0: Well, yeah. I mean, she compared that to saying, uh, you know, okay, so let's take this, this assertion that sexism is just how you, the, the, the objectified person deals with it. She was like, okay, if you said that, but just replace sexism with racism. Clearly everyone would disagree with you. And so it's a similar kind of thing with, Sexism, um, over at the Geek Feminism blog, uh, there's an entire more academic um, presentation on this whole issue of the sexy geek cosplay thing. And, um, she talks about how, quote, geek media representations of women influence geek women's desi- decisions to dress in sexy cosplay and how what makes sexy cosplay sexy is not just that women are attractive, but that they're performing and actively seeking the male approval. It's that question that you raised, Caroline, of like, well, who are you performing this for? And obviously, for professional cosplayers who make money off of other people buying calendars and whatnot of them in sexy costumes, yeah, obviously they're performing it for you know, to to look sexy for the male gaze. That's their job. Mm,
1: yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I guess they're talking too about like people who aren't just the just the professional ones, not just the professional cosplayers, but just um, women who might go to these cons and do want to capture that empowered feeling by dressing a certain way. And the the geek feminism blogger talked about how it is that particular type of gender performance that is rewarded in this culture, whether you're a professional or an amateur. To me, the, the geeks for consent response is sort of the cleanest
0: across the board response to all of this, which is simply that cosplay does not equal consent. Yeah. And perhaps if. You know, Comic-Con, as other cons are doing, outlines a stricter sexual harassment policy. The more that people talk about it, the more media coverage it gets. The more, you know, perhaps these kinds of behaviors that taint the cosplay
1: experience mm-hmm. um, might improve. Yeah, well, we can look to uh, Washington, D.C.'s Awesome Con as an example where this worked. Um, awesome Con partnered with Geeks for Consent to provide a team on site who could act as a resource for attendees who feel unsafe. Um, and AwesomeCon now has adopted a zero-tolerance policy against harassment, groping, stalking, and inappropriate photography. And they said that gender-based harassment doesn't have to happen in the workplace to be unacceptable. And so I think it's great that there are groups out there and cons out there who are taking definite concrete steps to say, hey, no, 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 no. You don't get to be a harasser and you shouldn't have to be a victim just because you want to come to this convention. Like harassment is not an acceptable part of dressing up and having an awesome time with your fellow geek culture people. Well personally, I don't feel qualified to jump directly into this fray regarding, you know, all of
0: the cosplay politics of sexy costumes. I think there are a lot of different layers to it in terms of the representations of women in these fandom sources, the source texts and source films and television shows and etc. um we are relying on our audience to fill in the blank for this. Because I know we got some cosplayers listening.
1: Yeah, I cannot wait to see your pictures, by the way. Yes, please send us photos. They are appreciated. Yeah, I want to see photos, and I, I want to hear from you uh, if you've had any of these sorts of... Whether you're male or female, cosplaying or crossplaying. I do want to hear from you about... Has, have you faced harassment or have you just been getting high fives everywhere you go? I want to, I want to hear about it. And is this
0: something that is overblown in the media? Is this simply, you know, sort of a very small aspect of con, the con life, um, that maybe gets too much attention? Let us know. Momstuff at com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuff podcast or message us on Facebook. And we have a couple of messages to share with
1: you right now. We have some letters here about our Wanderlust Traveling Women episode. I have one from Anna. Uh, She said, three years ago, I had a stable partner, good job prospects, and a home. I soon discovered I was pregnant and gave up my career to start down the path of motherhood. Later, I experienced a rather traumatic miscarriage in which I had to have a DNC. Following my miscarriage, my partner left me and blamed me for the loss of the child. Realizing that I gave up my career for a child that would never be, that resulted in the loss of my partner, was too much. So I decided that I needed to go. I didn't just travel, but I moved to rural Japan by myself. I've since moved around the southern island of Kyushu, met my future husband, and have been enjoying the freedom that comes with being a contract worker in Japan. I've never read any travel memoirs, and this podcast was the first time I didn't feel alone in what happened to me. I think more women should go out and live in another country by themselves for a while because it really does help you to see how small your problems are in the grand scheme of things. Thanks, Anna. And I got a
0: similar letter here from Natalie about um, how she got wanderlusty after... A breakup. Uh, she writes, It's almost embarrassing how true most of the things you discussed are in regard to myself and my story. Over the past year, my significant other of 11 years and I broke up and I found myself lost, never having experienced adult life without him. I'm a school teacher and have the summers off, which allowed me to take what I refer to as an epic summer adventure, all of which she capitalized. I got in my car and just drove to as many places as I could. I think the most life-changing spot for me was seeing the Grand Canyon for the first time. It could be because of how impressive the Grand Canyon is, but I think it was more because it was my first major stop. Walking up to this amazing place that exists in the world and knowing that I got there by myself was completely and utterly overwhelming and empowering. I sat on the rim of the canyon and just cried while others walked around me wondering what my problem was. After that, I knew that I could do anything and that being alone has some great benefits. You can check out a blog I kept while I was gone at nataliegenie.tumblr.com and see photos from my trip on my Instagram using the hashtag myepicsummeradventure. Thanks for all the time and effort you put into your show. You never disappoint. So thanks, Natalie, and thanks everybody who's written in to us. MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social medias, as well as all of our blog posts, videos, and podcasts, including this one, which also includes its sources, so you can follow along, there's one place to go, and it's StuffMomNeverToldYou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit housestuffworks.com.